Welcome to Blackhawk Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on the teaching team here uh, at Blackhawk Church. Welcome to all of you who are in this room uh, with me uh, right here. And welcome to those of you who are watching on a screen. Maybe you're in another venue here at Brader Way. Maybe you're joining us uh, downtown at the Upper House. Or maybe you're at Blackhawk uh, Fitchburg. And those of you who are part of our Blackhawk Chinese ministry, Dijon Zimei Ping An. Good to have all of you uh, with us here today. We are continuing in our series uh, through the Gospel of Mark, and we're calling this series, this part of the series, The Unexpected King, as we go through uh, the Gospel of Mark, The Unexpected King. So if you've been keeping up with us as we've read through the Gospel of Mark, Mark uh, has the reader basically on a straight line uh, from Galilee to Judea uh, to Jerusalem. So as the reader reads the book of Mark, it just keeps taking Jesus right from Galilee, Judea, and today he's going to actually enter into Jerusalem. So in church tradition, the passage I'm going to look at today is um, called the Palm Sunday uh, passage for obvious reasons. We'll see that in just uh, a minute. So what's happening in the book of Mark is that Mark is, um, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, Mark is slowing down kind of intentionally. So for 10 chapters, Mark has covered like three years of the life of Jesus. And then starting in chapter 11, it's like puts the brakes on. So chapter 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16, six chapters is all about one week in the life of Jesus. Some commentators refer to the book of Mark as one long passion narrative with a, a, a long introduction, basically. Because a lot of the book of Mark, over a third of the book of Mark now, is focused on this one week in the life of Christ. The reason he's slowing down is because Mark's intent is that the reader would see that Jesus is completely misunderstood. He's the unexpected king. He's been presenting an unexpected kingdom. So the, the people are like, is this the right guy? Is this the right guy? Is, they think he is the right guy. But I mean, Jesus' idea of the kingdom is completely different than the people in Jerusalem. And Mark wants to slow the reader down so that the reader grasps that. That's what's happening. And when Jesus, the unexpected king, comes into Jerusalem, it reminds me of one of those old westerns, like real old, I don't know, I don't even know if this movie, I'm sure you can find it uh, on Netflix or something. It's called the movie Shane, 1953, and it's an old western. It's when this mysterious guy comes from out of town, and the... This old western town is filled with a corrupt sheriff, a corrupt banker. Just There's nothing but moral bankruptcy and just completely, it's just awful town. And this mysterious figure comes. And basically, there's a showdown, kind of a gunfight. And, and Shane doesn't say this, but I'm just kind of paraphrasing the, this gist of the movie. It's basically like he says to the bad guy, there's not enough room in this town for the both of us. You got to go down. You, you know that? Have you guys seen a western like that before? You know, there's just there's not enough, you know, that kind of a thing. Now, Jesus doesn't say that, but you get, that's exactly what's going on here. The king has come into town, and he's basically looking at the people who run this town, and he's basically saying to them, there's not enough room in this town for both of us, and you're going down. That's what we're going to see today. 
Take a look at the screen. Jesus said, it's Jerusalem. The king is here. He challenges the religious establishment. They're about money and power and prestige and all that stuff. Bankrupt with power. They fight back by confronting Jesus with difficult questions. They're no match for Jesus. And Jesus basically says, you're going down. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark 11. Mark 11. Now, even though Mark is slowing the pace down, uh, as the teaching team, we kind of pick in the pace up a little bit. So last week, I basically uh, covered, I skimmed over two chapters, and today I'm going to skim over two chapters also. So our intention in this series is never to cover every verse in the book of Mark. We're trying to help you, the audience, get a picture for what Mark is actually doing. He's presenting Jesus as the guy who's misunderstood. His family misunderstands him. His close friends misunderstand He's the unexpected king, talking about an unexpected kingdom. So that's the purpose of our series, to kind of really focus on that. So because we know we're going so fast, uh, next week, uh, Pastor Charles is going to come back and look at a few of the things that I'm skipping over today. We're just trying to give you kind of a bird's eye view of what's going on in this section. You okay with that? Doesn't matter. We're going to do it anyway. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Can't believe I just said that. I just said that. You guys should get a different senior pastor. You know that? <laughs> Why don't you guys vote on that sometime? There you go. Right All right. Right away. Right tonight. There you go. Mark chapter 11. Verse 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. Well, let's just stop for a second and get a geographical view of kind of what's happening here. So here's kind of a, uh, this is what Jerusalem used to look like. So um, there's Bethany, you can see. He's going to be going back to Bethany every night. He never spends the night in Jerusalem. Every night he goes back out to Bethany. And you see Bethphage, and this is where the parade is going to be, right in that, that long red line there. And you can see, look at the size of the temple, that complex, compared to everything else in Jerusalem. It just dwarfs the whole city. There you go. Okay, now let's go back to the text. Mark 11. And he's coming in the Mount of Olives, sent to his two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, You'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Matthew adds a very interesting commentary about why this is taking place that we don't see in Mark. Matthew adds, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is uh, quoting Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. And on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is basically saying, while, while he's doing this, I'm here. I'm here. He has been hiding like, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Don't. Now he's coming into Jerusalem. This is his city. And he's basically going, the king has arrived. 
That's what's going on. That's the significance of this. Let's go back to the text. Mark 11, verse 8. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. How many of you ever heard of the word Hosanna before? Raise your hand. Hosanna. Now, what does it mean? Okay, watch this. Hoshiana. Hoshiana. It's a tra- Hosanna is the English translation of that Hebrew word, and it's a command save, save. Not, it's hard to translate. It's really untranslatable. It's kind of the idea of please save. We beg you to save. That's basically what Hosanna means. It's the, it's the cry that the people are going, oh my gosh, the Savior is here. You're going to save us. He's the one who's coming uh, to sit on the throne of David. The kingdom is going to arrive. Their idea of salvation and Jesus' idea of salvation Two completely different things. They misunderstand what he's going to present and what he's going to do is unexpected. They want a political savior, and he's not going to do that for them. That's the kind of thing that'll get you killed. How you guys doing? Follow me? Verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So he goes into the temple area, kings arrived, looks around, what would he see? What would he see? Something like this. It's massive. Massive complex. So scholars tell us that it was an area of about, it's 35 acres, you guys. This whole big area. As a comparison, uh, our Capitol building sits on a, a square block that's 13 acres. It's three times the size of the Capitol area in downtown uh, Madison. And we have nothing in our culture with which to compare this structure. It is the religious center. It is the political center Uh, It is the cultural center. It's an art museum, history museum, all wrapped up in the same kind of thing. This is the very center, you guys, of Jerusalem. And these people are super proud of this structure. That's what he sees. And like in his mind, he's going, man, I got a lot to say to these people. It's too late. Going to leave Jerusalem, go to Bethany, spend the night. And then come back. Verse 12. How you guys doing? I already asked you that, didn't I? I'm just going to be reading the narrative, you guys. I hope you're fine with that. I love this kind of stuff. Here we go. The next day, what day would that be? So he enters in on what day of the week? That's not a hard question, you guys. Because we call it Palm Sunday. So this next day would be what? This is Monday. He's entering in. As they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf. He went to find out if it had any fruit. 
When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. That's that's weird, isn't it? That's interesting. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him. Why? Because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Hmm. In the morning, what day would this be? Thanks for paying attention. As they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, that's a long passage. But did you notice anything about that whole scene? Listen, you guys, everything that Mark is doing here is very intentional. Did you notice anything about that? He starts with, on Monday, he goes in, and first, before he gets into the city, he sees a what? fig tree, and then he goes into the, what? Temple. And then, the next day, on Tuesday, he walks in the city and he sees a what? Fig tree. So you got fig tree, temple, fig tree. Have we seen something like this before in the book of Mark? It's a sandwich, you guys. Mark is famous for this literary device called an intercalation. So here's a fig tree, temple, it's a fig sandwich, basically. Or Fig Newton, maybe. (laughs) Very significant what he's doing here. These are not just odd things that the author is doing. He's doing this for a reason. He sees a fig tree from a distance. What does that look like? It's like this. Beautiful tree. That phrase, in a distance, is very important. Very, Very impressive from a distance. And then he walks up to it, and he looks for, uh, in March or April, that's when this would have taken place, it, he's looking for green early figs, which tells the person that it's going to produce fruit. If you see these green early figs, then when it's right in June and July, there will be figs there. He sees no green early figs, and he knows this tree, even though it looks impressive from a distance. When you get up close, it has no fruit there. And then he walks into the temple. When he sees the temple, oh my goodness, it looks impressive from a distance. But you get up close, and there's no, no fruit there. There's no, no worship of Yahweh there. What does he see? He sees people changing money. He sees a corruption 
They're bankrupt theologically, morally. And he becomes angry with them. See that? Verse 15. Reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He's just, he's just going in and just boom, 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 flips the tables. Why? Why? It's not because they were exchanging money, you guys. They had to do that kind of thing. People would come from all different places in Jerusalem, and they had to exchange it for the temple tax that they had there. So it's okay. But it's where they are doing it. Verse 17. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. He's coming into the town, and he's seeing nothing but moral and theological bankruptcy in the center of this place. Looks impressive from the outside, but it's, it's, it's rotten to the core of the inside. And he calls it out. Of course, verse 18, when he says that, as a fighting words, chief priests and teachers of the law heard this, began to look for a way to kill him. For they feared him. Why'd they fear him? Because he's popular. That's why. It'll disrupt their, their system. How you guys doing? You see this? So then later on in chapter uh, 11, he, he, he basically asked by the chief priests and the religious authorities, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things, they ask, and who gave you the, the authority to do this? You see, they're, they're upset with him. Jesus doesn't directly answer that question. He's too smart for them. He answers it with a question. And then after he stumps them, then he spins, spins a tale, spins a story. Chapter 12, verse 1. Then Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they, the tenants, seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenant said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come, kill those tenants, give the vineyard to others. 
How many of you read this passage of Scripture? Then quote Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. <laughs> These are fighting words, you guys. He walks into their town, and he just makes up this story, spins a story, and it needs a little explanation. Look at this slide. The owner of the vineyard, well, that's God. The tenants are the people who own the land. That's Israel, people who are occupying the temple. Servants sent by the owner. These are various prophets that the owner has sent in what we call the Old Testament. They call the Hebrew Bible. And he's, he's going to quote one of them in a minute. The son is Jesus. They kill the son. The owner, God, will come back and punish the nation. The vineyard. He gives the vineyard to others. Who's the others? It's the Gentiles. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Gee, talk about offensive. Oh, my. You're going to give this to Gentiles? You, you couldn't think of a more offensive thing to do in the heart of Israel than this right here. And this is totally, totally ticks these leaders off. And this is how they respond. Verse 12. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. They are, they are morally and theologically bankrupt, and they are spineless cowards. And they're afraid to do anything because Jesus has got the crowd on their side. How do you take someone down who's popular, and who has a large following? That's the question they're asking. What, what can we do? And so they conspire. How do, you, how do you take a popular person down? Well, you shame them in public. You enter into some kind of a situation where they can publicly say something that puts them at risk. It's called a debate. Doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, in a debate situation, if you can just get the other person to say something that just makes them look bad, they can't recover from that. They'll lose their popularity. Nothing's new, you guys. And so, they enter into a debate with Jesus. There's three different scenes that follow, and each one of them is conspired by these guys to take this guy down. So they bring him all kinds of different questions that are related to the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus is brilliant, and he defeats them each and every time. Charles will focus on these debates next week as Jesus is brilliant and wins these debates. The whole scene then closes in chapter 12, verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. <laughs> Did you see what, was, what he was doing in his words there? These guys like this. Everybody look up here. These guys like this. They like this, they like this, and they like this. This is what's going to happen. Vroom. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, if you're familiar with the book of Mark, that's 
boom. And he's going to now tell a story that completely illustrates that. Boom. Who's on top? These old religious theologians who are rich and wealthy, and they make their money off of poor people, and they are going to go down. And God will raise up someone who is on the bottom. So there's this little story that Mark tells. How you guys doing? I'm just trying to help you see. Nothing is just, Mark just says, oh, put this down, put this down, put this down. And it's, it's all very intentional, you guys. He's doing something here. He's the unexpected king. This is his town. They don't belong there. They're going down. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Many pe people take this right out of context and say, oh, you should be generous, just like the poor widow. Hello, stop, 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 stop. Okay, great, fine. Be generous, that's great. That's not what's going on here. Primarily what's happening here is Jesus is contrasting this righteous woman She's the one who does love God with all of her heart, soul, and mind. You'll see that. We skipped over that debate. You'll see that next week. She loves her neighbor as herself. She's the righteous person, not like these corrupt people. She's completely different. And they have the gall to take money from her. This system is corrupt. It's coming down. How you guys doing? That's what's going on. In chapter 13, verse 1, boom. The Olivet Discourse happens, and it's all about the destruction of the temple. Lessons for our lives. First lesson for our life. Jesus points us to true greatness. Jesus points us to true greatness. This is not like a, uh, like a shovel application. You know, like, you know, I, I, I wish those other people in the world would be humble. I'm perfectly humble. I don't need to. No, 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 no. Everyone needs humility, you guys. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus wants all of us to seek to be here on the bottom, like this widow. God will raise us up. This is the passage we looked at uh, last week, Mark 10, 43 and 45. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This widow is the, is the righteous one. She's the righteous one. He's pointing us to her, to true greatness, not these corrupt, wealthy theologians. Second lesson for our life. Jesus is the just protester. He's the just protester. 
He comes into a system that is full of corruption, and he protests against that because he's about justice. Justice is not a liberal work, you guys. God is a God of justice, and he cares about what's happening in society. He's also a God of mercy, but he's a God of justice. Many of us like mercy better than justice, but he's, he's both merciful and just. You know the difference between justice and mercy? Remember that, that fable? You guys heard that fable, that, that story somebody told about the family that was on the river, and they were having picnics, and then uh, they looked up in the river, and they saw this uh, person floating down the river, just clinging to like a piece of board, and they saw that person was hurt, and the mom and dad go out in the river, pull the person up, and they person's hit on the head and can hardly walk, and the family takes care of the person, feeds them, takes them into their house, takes care of them. And the next day, the family's having another picnic, and another person comes floating down the river, and they're barely hanging on. And they go out to the river and pull the person. The person's bleeding, broken arms. They take the person, take care of him, put him in the house. The next day, another person comes floating down the river broken arms and broken hands. And the father looks up and goes, what's going on upstream? That's the difference between mercy and justice. You guys follow that? Mercy is you take care of people who are hurting. Justice goes, what in this happening over there? And justice has the courage to do something about it. Jesus is a just protester. He's a just protester. He sees a system that's full of corruption, and he has a spine that's made of steel, and he overturns the tables. Third, lesson for our life, he's the loving disruptor. He's the loving disruptor. He comes into the temple, and he, boom. You know, when we were uh, thinking about putting the message together, uh, the teaching team and I, we thought about putting stuff on the table here and like that I would flip the table upside down. But then uh, I thought maybe all that stuff would go into the instrument and cost a lot of money and then it would shock all of you and then I'd get nasty emails and I don't even need to deal with those emails. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing to kind of get your attention because I think many of us don't have that kind of Jesus. We have a, a Jesus who's meek and mild. He's always loving. He's always loving. He'll always forgive me. Doesn't matter what I do. He'll always forgive me. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Jesus is loving and forgiving. Absolutely. But he also comes into situations that are offensive. To <clears throat> Boom. If he came into your house, are there any tables in your house? He'd go, Boom. The way you and your house deal with money. Boom. How about alcohol? Boom. How about things that are sexual? Boom. You're a follower? Boom. Just like that. Chris, I don't like it when you do that. That's too loud.
Really? Who's your Jesus? Here's an image of Jesus. When you think of him, do you think of that? Is that what you think of? That's the real Jesus, you guys. He disrupts things. He comes into your life, and he can make, he can make a mess in your life. Here's the Jesus we think about all the time. He's the loving Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. Is Jesus the loving Jesus? Absolutely. He grew up in poverty. He grew up powerless. He came and died on a cross for you. God is loving and compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and bounding in love. He is like that. But he's also a disruptor. He is both. He's both. Many times, he's come into my life and when I get serious about him, I just feel, I feel like he's walking around in my heart going, boom, boom, boom. Sometimes I feel like we're, we're too soft. And we just have half of Jesus. Jesus disrupts things because he wants things to change. He disrupts things because he wants people to see he is the Lord of Lords and he's the King of Kings. Or have you misunderstood that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a, a God who is the creator of all things. And you sent your son to this planet to redeem this world from sin. We thank you, Father, that Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he has the right to come into wherever he wants to go and turn over tables. We pray, Father, that you would help us to not fall into the mistake of the people of Jerusalem. We pray, Father, that you would help us as he disrupts and messes up to our lives that we would get on our knees and confess sin and say to him, you have every right to do whatever you want to do because you're the king. We pray this in Christ's name, for the sake of his reputation, all God's people said.